Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Elixir 1.13, the final release candidate, should be out by the time you hear this. And there's some cool stuff in there. So what, what have you guys seen? Yeah, so Tyler Young drew our attention to some 1.13 features that have gone unnoticed by a lot of people. So he kind of brought up, there's map.map, there's map.filter, map.reject, and all the keyword equivalents. The map versions are both faster and more expressive than piping enum to a new map, he said. So all interesting. I haven't even looked at what map.map is. What is that? It sounds a little redundant. (laughs) (laughs) I actually do this a lot. Uh, Anytime that you have to go through like a, a, well, a map and you want to like transform some of the values or maybe the keys or something, I would typically just pipe it into enum.map. You get a key value tuple, but then you have to like return that same tuple with the transform values, but then you get a list of tuples. So then you have to go, you know, enum into or map new or something like that to put it back into a map. So this kind of bypasses that. So with like, for example, map.map, you still can pipe a a map into it, but then uh, you get, you still get your tuple key value in your anonymous function inside of it. But then you can just uh, return the transform value and at, on the other end of, of that function, you still get a map. You don't get a list of tuples anymore. Okay, that's cool. So that's pretty, that's pretty neato. Definitely going to use that, I think. Yeah, because I, I do a lot of, you know, where you're, you're using the enum module to enumerate over and loop over something, a collection of things. And lots of times that is a map. So this can just have some improvements both in performance, but how it's expressed. So I'm looking forward to playing with that and seeing what that actually feels like. Yeah. Speaking of things getting faster and better, uh, some folks are getting their new Mac M1 Max chips to the to the extreme, and they're sharing their anecdotal, you know, speed improvements, non non scientific. But I'm sure a lot of Twitter folks have come across this. But like, here's one example, right? So 2017 MacBook Pro. Who knows what chips inside that? But you know, old, busted, and, and slow apparently. So it's two minutes and 23 seconds to compile this one dude's you know projects. On the new laptop with the M1 Max Extremium, you know, Super Plus Pro, it's uh, one minute and 28 seconds. So that's like that shaves off like a whole minute off of that. That's the difference, right? Okay, so that's great. You know, that that's just the MacBook. But I think some of the context here is that that's just like the JIT running in like the emulation mode, I think. And so if you want to be blown away, look out for OTP 25 and there might be some more improvements uh, for, for the JIT on ARM stuff. I might've gotten that stuff wrong, but I do know that OTP 25 is going to be more faster according to Jose Valim. So we'll see. And we've got a, a link to uh, some, a pull request from the OTP team uh, that goes into some more details on that. Yeah. You can check out the pull request in the show notes, but it's uh, specifically around doing the JIT that uh, targets the ARM chipset and architecture. So previously, the JIT was all just on the Intel x86 architecture. And now they're saying, well, we're actually going to do optimizations around the ARM. And that's going to be landing in OTP 25. So if you want to play with it now, you have to check out the master branch of Erlang. But it is something you can play with if you want to see the impact. Yeah, they say 1.4 to three times as fast. So that's pretty good. I love these improvements. And next, there's a new case study on the Elixir Lang website. So this one is about how Elixir came to power the national access point for transport data in France. 
and it explores why Elixir continues to be an excellent fit thanks to its real-time libraries, educational tooling, and orchestration capabilities. So I haven't had a chance to read this. It just came out this morning as of our recording, but I love seeing where you have public sector using tools like this where Elixir is able to help them provide public good. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, next up, Podium, a Utah-based company that heavily uses Elixir, was highlighted in TechCrunch recently for having raised a pre-IPO round, boosting its valuation to $3 billion. Podium provides um, software services for communications and payment tools for small to medium-sized businesses. So we're always just excited to point out Elixir-backed companies that are growing in value and in size and being successful. I actually live really close to Podium and thought about working there once long ago and never did, but... <laughs> well, that was $3 billion ago. My yeah, it's true. $3 billion <laughs> mistake. It would have all been mine. <laughs> $3 billion. Still, I can't, can't even fathom that number. It's just a too, too large of a number. Also the news, Membrane Framework was updated to 0.8.0. And the most notable changes are the standardization of timestamps. Oh, my favorite subject, timestamps. Um, <laughs> and it's passing with uh, with each buffer and uh, logging improvements. So yeah, those are pretty good improvements. We talked about Membrane back in episode 43. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, it's a powerful Elixir framework for streaming multimedia. In an age like today where everything is online, it's, it feels like uh, streaming multimedia is pretty important. And Elixir with its IO superpowers is pretty well suited for that. So we got a link to the show uh, where we talked to a membrane, but always glad to see improvements like this, even even what feels like small ones. Um, but these are these are uh, quality of life improvements. That's it. And next, Chris Keithley, who created and maintained a large number of Elixir packages, and we covered previously how a number of those packages were being handed off to other members of those projects to take over maintainership. So many people will know Chris because he is a host on the Elixir Outlaws podcast. So a lot of people are probably familiar with him. And he's also spoken a lot at conferences. And he was asked what the transfer of these libraries meant. And he gave some more clarification where he says, I'll be stepping away from public contributions to the Elixir ecosystem for the foreseeable future. I still love the language and the runtime, and I'm continuing to use them both but I'm very focused on new areas and ideas that exist beyond any given set of tools. I'm becoming increasingly defensive of my time. So we have a link to the Twitter thread where he goes into more detail and talks about some more specifics, but I just totally respect that someone recognizes that for my own personal needs, I need to change the way I'm doing things. And he wants to go explore some different options and different things. I would just say I'm super grateful for all the work that he has done in contributing to the Elixir community, both in talks and in libraries. It's been, he's always made an effort to challenge the way we think and push us in new directions. So I really appreciate his efforts there. All right. Also in the news, Sonic Pi is a code-based music creation and performance tool. And if you've heard of Sonic Pi before, you probably remember that it's actually written in Ruby to change the music that's being played on this Raspberry Pi device. You can check out more info and videos on what they're doing, what that's about. But why are we talking about Sonic Pi here? Well, the Sonic Pi team recently merged a PR that brings Elixir and Phoenix into the Sonic Pi. Uh, we've got a link to the PR. It's not being used yet. It's just really just kind of setting up a foundation. But that's really cool. 
projects like that can be really tied to like the identity of a language. And that's been tied in my mind to the identity of Ruby on a small device like a Raspberry Pi that's dedicated to a single purpose of just creating music. And so it's it's kind of blowing my mind a little bit that uh, that they're you know considering and 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 merging in work that lets it work with Elixir and Phoenix. That's pretty cool. Yeah, personally, I think they might be wanting to get Live View in there for real time visualizations and interactions because if you watch any of their demos, it's all about the real time modification of these Ruby scripts that change the music as it's playing. So it's kind of like a DJ way to mix up and and have a real time performance stuff. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. Nerves 1.7.12 was released, which brings it up to being compatible with one Elixir 1.13. So now you can use Elixir 1.13 to build projects, and it doesn't cause issues with nerves. And in, in addition, they add, it looks like they added a little message when the build completes to let you know what to do next. So some nice quality of life improvements there. And related, the Nerves Livebook 0.3.2 is out, and it includes the recent Livebook 0.3.2 release, but it also brings new support for the Raspberry Pi 02W. So that's one of those very small, low-powered devices. And being able to run Livebook on that, I don't even know how well that works, but apparently it works now. So that's really cool just because you can start to interact and play with the super low-power device through a browser like using Livebook. That's great. Also, the news we have. Um, this is actually I don't I don't know how how new this is, but this is more of a today I learned. Today I learned XDoc supports rendering mermaid graphs, and this discovery was brought to you by Frank Hunless. Thanks for thanks Frank for tweeting about that. That helps helps us uh, all discover it too. I think it's similar to Dotlang, where you can use like ASCII characters, like drawing arrows and hyphens and greater than signs and all that, which get rendered into graphics. I wish I knew about this because I I certainly have. I've had like little architectural graph things that I've wanted to draw in, into some docs. So I should give it a, a, a shot. Have you guys heard about this? Is this new to you too? I've never heard of it. I'm going to go put them in all my packages now. <laughs> <laughs> so we have some links to the docs where they show you how to incorporate that into your XDoc project. And I had not seen this before and before Frank shared it. And so I'm really glad when people discover things in the Elixir community and they share it and say, hey, today I learned something cool. Like that's exactly what happened with Tyler Young talking about the things he discovered with the map.filter, map.reject features in Elixir 1.13. So you don't have to be the one to create all the stuff. Just helping to share the things that are meaningful is a great way to just contribute to. Speaking of sharing things you think is meaningful, I saw a draft PR come in and on live view that I thought would be meaningful. This is adding a declarative API for live view components. So you can define inside of your component what attributes exist, what their types are, and if they're required or not. So then this could give you the ability to validate missing required attributes and validate undefined attributes. I think this is something that a lot of live view folks have wanted for a long time. Like there's kind of no way of getting insights into like what the public API of the components looks like without kind of digging into the code, or maybe somebody was nice and documented it for you. But I don't know if this is compile time or not, but I don't see why it wouldn't be. You could at compile time get these errors saying like, hey, you didn't pass in this required attribute. And if that's the case, you could also get it, you know, into your language server and popping up on your IDE. So that could be really some really nice feedback. 
Yeah, this is one of those features that seems to also come out of the Surface project, where in Surface they were called props. Yep. I think that's what they were called, because I know that's what they're called in other languages like Vue.js. And this is one of those things that a lot of people have been excited about. So I thank you, Cade. I didn't know about this. You brought this to our attention. Yay. <laughs> Yay for bringing things to our attention. <laughs> so, hey, you, dear listener, if, if there's something cool going on in the community and we don't know about it, just tag us on Twitter at Thinking Elixir, or you can just send us an email, show at thinkingelixir.com to let us know about anything cool you see. But that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today we're being joined by our special guests, Mickey and Kate Rezenis. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on. Thank you for having us. This is a fun topic and opportunity to talk with you guys because I met both of you at ElixirConf 2021 down in Austin, Texas. That was fun. It was great to see people in person. And it's these types of interactions where I got to meet you guys and talk with you in person where that's where I think a lot of the value comes from these in-person conferences. But when I was talking with you, I became aware of like, Kate, you are coming fresh to the tech scene, like uh, fresh out of college, graduated, and you gave a, a lightning talk, which was really cool. And Mickey, you t- you've been in the Elixir space longer, and you talked about greasing the wheels of adoption in Elixir in the workspace. Very cool topics. But also just personally, I am a father of five daughters. And so I am aware of the idea of women in tech, women in the programming space, and some of the, I don't know if it's social pressure that kind of pushes them out or, or whatever, but I'm aware of that as a father of daughters. And I've, I've tried to encourage my daughters to take an interest in programming because I see it as a, a fun, creative outlet. It's something I really enjoy. I'd love to share it. And they, you know, they are individuals, they have their own interests, and they've chosen not to follow dad in that direction. But I, I would love to get your guys' perspective on coming into tech. Uh, Mickey, you've done an awesome job raising your daughter, Kate, and getting her interested in tech. And so thinking, I know a lot of us out here, we have daughters or we have nieces or we have family that we have connections to, siblings, whatever. And we'd love to be able to better encourage them in this space. But also, I think we have a responsibility as like the traditional white man in the programming community to be responsible and supportive as well. So thank you guys for coming to talk with us about these interesting and important topics. Uh, But before we jump into all of that, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about you guys individually. So what can you tell us about yourselves? I, at a young age, got married and I had five kids by the time I was 30. I had four kids by the time I was 26. So I'm with you on the five kid thing. I just have a boy, girl, boy, girl, girl. It's like I have two careers. I have the career of being a wife and mother, which is extremely fulfilling. And it makes me sad that more people in the the world see homemakers and and mothers, stay-at-home moms as low status because my ability to to perform in the workplace, I think, comes a lot from the experience that I I had with raising my children because I'm dealing with people all the time. And I don't know if you noticed in tech, there's people all the time. And uh, we'd like to think of everyone in tech as adults, but sometimes I think they act more like kids. So I might be uniquely scoped to deal with some of the challenges in the workplace. So that, that my background is I was a ho- I'm a homemaker, mother, teacher first, and I, I uh, do software engineering now because that's where I am in my life. My name's Kate. My mother homeschooled me up until high school, and then I started attending community college at the age of 16. By the time I was 18, I got an associate's 
and moved on to NC State. In the end, I got a degree. But the reason I was interested in tech and I got into it, it was more of a means to an end. I've always wanted, basically, look at my mom, and she's pretty awesome. I think that she's pretty awesome, and I'd like to, you know, follow in her steps with having kids. Tech is a great way to support that dream. First of all, there's a lot to learn in tech. There's security and education in tech, so I'd like to get into that. But mostly, I want to be like my mom. (laughs) I will say that it can be from the heights sometimes. When she talks about me, I feel like I have a long way to fall. I don't always like that. (laughs) I appreciate what you said about tech being a stable and learning kind of profession it can provide a lot of stability. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I feel, I feel like folks that work in tech, maybe they don't think about this every day, but it's a good reminder that that is such a, well, the word I always used on it uh, uh, to describe it is blessed. It is such a blessed career because it's, it bypasses so many hardships that a lot of other folks have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And by hardships, I mean like, it's normal for tech jobs to like, oh, you know what, I'm just I'm going to sleep without an alarm <laughs> or roll in. And, and it's normal to work remotely now. You know, I have no like physical labor I have to work with. You know, I don't I don't it's not expected for me to like have to deal with other pe- like retail. Like I don't have to deal with other people in a retail sense. And the list goes on and on and on about how. You know, the word protected isn't the right, the right word, but like how, how protected tech workers are from what the hardships are for, for a lot of other folks. I don't really like that. I feel like that shapes people the, the wrong way. That lets them get away with nasty things more often. That's why I hired people like me. <laughs> <laughs> but David, I, to your point, I think, uh, I think the word I would use is shielded. Shielded. Because I do yeah. feel like we are, like when... When COVID hit and there was a lot of upset in just the economy mm-hmm. in the United States in particular, there's a lot of people who were displaced, lost jobs because of the industries that they were in. There were a lot of service industries, a lot of construction or whatever. Yeah. And I know personally, like me and all of my friends in, in my tech space, we weren't. We had no problems. I, I get to work remote now. <laughs> it's, it's quite the opposite. You know, these companies are making more money than they ever made before. It's interesting that you come from it from the COVID perspective, because prior to entering software or going back in the workforce, the reason to go back in the workforce was simply money. You can imagine raising five kids and the expenses that go along with that, especially for homeschooling, because you can't outsource that there's not free education that you're opting into. You're buying their books. You're devoting your day towards doing that. And it just became a necessity. Like we qualified on paper for every benefit the government could offer. And we chose not to do that. But going into tech, for us, it was we were scraping by. There were weeks where um, sometimes where it's like you go to the market and and I'm going to buy eggs because eggs is my protein source and I can't afford meat this week. And so like for a lot of people that I work with in tech, they, they've never experienced that type of hardship. They've never experienced wondering how are you going to buy shoes for your child or like Kate, how many times have I bought you new clothes and how many hand-me-downs have you sorted through? I don't remember the last time you bought me new clothes. Actually, that's not true. 
you bought me some the other week and I remembered it. But like as a child, like we were just constantly, they, my kids were sorting through hand-me-downs. That's what we had available to us. And so I feel like uh, there is this huge disparity when I'm in tech. I, f- I feel very rich. I feel um, like I have just very provided for lots of provision, lots of security. And uh, I know what it's like to have people depending on you for that and just not having it. And to me, tech is just a, a tremendous blessing. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy that you, you, you said that because that, that was, I think that was the first point I came into is like, it's so stable, so secure. You don't have to worry about those things, at least for the most part. There are, you know, the, the problems with like startups going out of business or whatever and layoffs, but in general, it's not very hard to find a, a follow-up job. But you know, these reasons that you guys bring up, I think those are important and we would love to share those, that career path with other people around us. So I would love to just maybe kind of jump into our topic. And Kate, you're just at that point where you're starting out your professional development career. And I was really surprised that Elixir is really kind of one of your first languages. So I was curious to hear what was that education experience like? You know, you have the computer science program, and they're probably not teaching Elixir there. So like, what was your path to Elixir like? And and how did that go? I took most of my coding um, classes at school in Java. So it's like home to me. But when I graduated, I knew I didn't have any projects to show. I had done a lot of coding in school, but long story short, I lost all my projects. Big disappointment. But I need, I needed to start working on a language and really mastering a language and maybe like develop an app. Mom talked to me about Elixir and I read the first chapter of programming Elixir by Dave Thomas. Um, the pattern matching intrigued me. So that's kind of how I got sucked in and I've enjoyed it ever since. And I think that there's a huge market for it right now. Like it's going to start going up and up. So don't forget about Ruby. Yes. Well, that we were trying to decide whether I should do a project in Ruby on Rails or a project in Elixir. Having the experience from Rails, I, I did an internship the year before using Ruby on Rails and that helped me transition to Phoenix because I had never worked with a framework before that. So that was great. Yeah, and there's a lot of good uh, intro starting resources around Rails and Ruby. So that would make sense. I've enjoyed the books that are written about Elixir and Phoenix. I find that I enjoy reading a book and uh, going through that than maybe a tutorial sometimes. There's just multiple ways to learn on Phoenix that I um, have appreciated. Are there any particular books that you would point out to people that we could recommend? Yeah, the the one that has introduced me to Phoenix way better than I thought it would was Programming in Phoenix Using Live View. I think the actual title is Programming Phoenix Live View. Yes, yes. Gotcha. So Sophie DiBenedetto's book? Yeah, she's a great writer. We had the pleasure of meeting her at ElixirConf, and that was really nice because I know authors put a lot of time into their books, and they really want them to be useful because who works on something that no one's, you know, no one wants to work on something no one's going to use. So it was really nice to be able to present Kate and say, hey, look, here's Sophie, another woman in tech, and she did this thing, and we could appreciate all the work she put in that book. Yeah, Sophie was awesome. She was one of the MCs at the conference, so that was fun to see. Yeah, it's interesting to think you you said that Ruby on Rails helped you you transition into Phoenix, and it's interesting you say that because when I think back to my first experience with a framework, like it's a whole new mindset, right? It's like, there's migrations and there's like places where you put things and it's like different. Like I've been learning coding, but like nobody ever told me like, here's how you're supposed to migrate a database and here's how you're supposed to do routing for web requests. And it's a whole slew of new things. So I remember learning Rails for the first time and I was just like, 
my first job was actually using Django and it has similar concepts. And I was like, I don't understand what you guys are doing. Why can't we just put scripts where we want them to be? Like, why do they have to be in this one spot? And then I learned Ruby on Rails and this was before I had learned about databases. And so I was like, what do you mean I need to go up and down with my databases? Like, this makes zero sense to me. Like, what are we doing? And then later, after I had gone through college and, and taken some SQL classes, I was like, okay, this is all starting to click now. And it's true. Like, the first time you learn, like, this world of frameworks, like, it's very odd and, and different. And I think that's probably an area where the Elixir community could improve, where we could have more truly new to programming resources and that's a, a challenge to build. Like, I, I think like I have some courses, right? It's a challenge for me to do that because I'm so far removed from having first learned it. I don't know where the questions are. Do you want to know how you figure out where the questions are? You keep on trying to help people. I have in, in the last 10 years, I think I have, I mean, I've easily tried to help 50 people enter programming. And I think that there's two sides to the coin that you're talking about, Mark. First side, are there resources available? I think a lot of people are ready to put in the work. And they need to find the right person to help them through. But a lot of people that I work with, just due to life, different things going on, it was really hard for them to commit to that. It's a long journey learning something that can be so foreign to you. And so it's it's like on one hand, I'm always very optimistic because I always want people to be able to do the same thing that I did. Because I'm like, I, I had this this hard time and it got easier because I went to tech. And I want to like take that to the world. One of the harder lessons that I've learned over the last nine years, because I've been an engineer for about roughly nine and a half years now, is that this road that I've been on, I want to make it more accessible, but I can't really expect it to be the road for everyone because I've just seen so many people. It's, it's very hard. Maybe they're not this type of thinker or maybe they don't, don't function this way. And the drive to, to get past that grind of learning is really hard to find in someone that you're teaching. We have, uh, well, mom more specifically is mentoring another person, Will, and he's going through Ruby on Rails because they have a lot of introductory stuff. But every time I sit down and actually program an Elixir, I get so excited. So I really wanted to show him pattern matching. And <laughs> I showed him and it was great. And it blew his mind just as much as it blew my mind. And I would have a difficult time referring him to some of the books that I've read just because you're right. They don't start out at the entry level. Having some understanding of programming is good before going into Elixir because of the resources. An interesting thing about Will, and this kind of speaks to your point, Mark. I know Will because I worked at a team camp where he was a member for roughly four years. I was kind of doing this like head of operations type of thing where I'd get up and I'd tell the kids to set the tables up or like do the dishes in the kitchen type of thing. And so I was always bossing everyone around. Well, I'm really good at that. And so we, we, he and I butted heads for the first two years, pretty, pretty rough. And then he ended up, he's from West Virginia. He ended up moving down here recently. And so, um, when he moved down here, he went into hardscaping, landscaping with rocks, basically super heavy manual labor. And he had been in high school. Um, he was also homeschooled up in West Virginia. He'd been in high school on a robotics team. And he told me that all the other people on the robotics team went to Ivy League schools. He didn't. His parents really didn't know how to navigate those ropes to, get him to college. And so earlier this year, I, I tweeted something like said, I was going to bring on another intern. Can, does anyone have an old MacBook Pro that I can start this guy out with? Uh, great guy, uh, emailed me, sent me a, uh, Mac Air, uh, Mac, Mac, I don't know what they're called. The Air, the small one with an M1 chip 
right to oh, my door for this. Nice. new, yeah. Wow. Brand yeah. new for Will. So Will has been working and, and, and he's been working on this for like nine months now, 10 months now. Like he's been doing stuff and, and muddling through. He's now up to rails, working on controllers and views. And um, I talked to my husband. I'm like, babe, like we should put him in an internship, but we know he's got to pay his bills because what he does is he works all day. And then he comes to my house and he's just wiped out and he's trying to, to do this stuff. And so starting in two weeks, he's going to be working at my house every day for three months, building an app. And at the end of that, hopefully I'm going to have an Elixir developer to release on the world. Very cool. So Mickey, I would love to come back with you and talk about your conference talk, which was about adoption. And what I really liked, though, it wasn't just like, here's some strategies for how to bring Elixir into your company. It was really focusing on the political people challenges. And that's something you alluded to earlier in our conversation. Uh, But it was like this whole big reality check, right? Like, I have this excitement around doing this and bringing this in. And if this is your situation, it's not going to be a good experience. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit on what you were talking about there so people can go check that out. Yeah, I, I've just found that people in general prefer to solve problems they're familiar with. So when people have been studying lines of code and programming and they find a problem, if they can solve that problem with lines of code and, and programming, then they're going to try to. So when they run into people problems, if they can find any justification for solving that problem with lines of code, which we all know won't work, right? But it makes them feel like they're doing something about the problem at hand. Then they're going to opt that direction because that's comfortable. People tend to take problems that they encounter and pattern match on past experience and then try and figure out what things they did in that past experience to make it better. And also, I feel like many people are, this isn't specific to men or women or anything like this, just across the board. People are somewhat emotionally stunted. It's like, I don't know if it's the culture has made it so that we can't disagree respectfully. So you get in these weird places where you're not sure how to voice disagreement in a respectful way and will it be accepted? And there's just so many social factors going on that people shy away from actually engaging with those social things because that's a really hard ball of wax to unwind. And so what they'll tend to do is they'll go, oh, like, like, oh, we're having scaling issues. Well, maybe their language they're working right now totally would handle the scale if they would talk about how they're architecting it and the dependencies they have between the apps. But that would mean that we have to talk to people. Instead of doing that, maybe we could just talk about this great and glorious elixir, which will fix all our problems. And bonus, we don't have to talk to people because we're going to just leave all that stuff behind and move forward. And it's a win. And so they basically, they're trying to circumvent the problem of the relationships on the team by solving problems with lines of code, which we're super comfortable doing. And to, to add on to that, in my experience now, I've worked at six startups now, I think. And at every one of them, I would say the... Now, Shift 5, the one I'm at now, is, is maybe slightly different in that it's super young. And so we do have some tech challenges, but not quite the same as people that have established customer bases and have these already agreements and, and a lot of stuff's already been built up. So we're very early. And I feel like uh, at Shift 5, this is the first company where I feel like I can really get in front of it a little bit and kind of encourage the discussion. But at every other company, the problems that I've seen have been rooted in communication dysfunction. and pretty much every situation, they have tried to fix that with tech and it just doesn't work. It looks good on paper, but it doesn't work. So what does work? Words, using your words. And also like, so when you go to look at people, there's a lot going on there, right? Each person has their individual goals. Then you have your company goals. You need to somehow align those. And sometimes that doesn't work so great. Sometimes we have the imposter syndrome and I'm not going to 
say that that doesn't exist, but there are some people that aren't competent and they get elevated into leadership positions. That's a hard one to get at. And if you can't get at that, basically you have someone who's blind driving the bus. And how do you fix that as an IC? These are harder challenges and challenges that I don't even recommend that certain levels of ICs engage with because it will cost you your job. And what is an IC? Individual contributor. Okay. So like you're an individual contributor on the team, you can clearly see that someone has made themselves the center of communication and they're kind of like controlling how people know things and they don't let it open up. A lot of times they're doing that to secure their position within the organization. And if people are playing those kind of uh, political games in management, it's, it's way more political games in management and the people management side, I think has a, is way more, uh, I don't know, both of them are bad than on the engineering side. You can get people playing political games with their titles on the engineering side. And the the, the problem with it is that it's very much like the emperor has no clothes. It's not safe to say that, you know, these political games are going on. You need some kid to walk in there and be like, the emperor has no clothes. And, but, but the, the kid that walks in and says that has to be prepared to lose their job because that is the reality, the situation when you start calling people on their incompetence, especially like Peter Principle type of incompetence where they have elevated themselves to where the point they're incompetent. Maybe they were great as a team lead. Maybe they were great as a manager and now they're a director and it's just falling apart. Well, that's the Peter Principle in action. And what do you do with, about that as an IC? Nothing. You really need to address those problems from the top. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I have a feeling that a lot of our listeners, especially those that are in large company settings, they probably recognize that. And there's just a level of interest on whether or not they're going to participate or just going <laughs> to let the ship go wherever it goes. And they're just on the, on the, on the ship collecting the paycheck and the, and the benefits and just going to keep on going. Um, but there, there's certainly a lot of folks, I think I consider me one of them that see that stuff and, at a loss of how to engage that safely. <laughs> well, the best thing anyone can do for an organization is increase communication across the org because ICs can do that in a way that's not threatening. Yeah. I'm working on something I see it's going to affect another team. I can raise that and I don't make anyone look bad for raising that. Mm -hmm. if I'm like, hey, you know, Kate, your team's working on this. I just ran into this problem. You probably need to know this. So all IG ICs, there's no situation so bad you can't make it worse. There's no situation so good you can't make it better. So as an IC, how can you engage is usually by lifting up the boats around you. That rising communication among the boats around you can really change the culture. But knowing that you are risking your career to engage with the high-level political games that can happen in unicorns and those type of things. Um mm -hmm. I don't know how to do it any differently. Like, I don't know how to turn me off. I am who I am kind of all the time. And so it's like, it's, it's like one of these things where either I'm going to talk to people and like be real or I'm not going to talk because I, I don't know how to do that fake in between thing. Right. So I already know mm. that if I, <laughs> can, can you hear you laughing, Kate? Um, but, and she knows this because she's, she's, I just like, there's this, there's this song by Incubus called Pardon Me. And it's like, pardon me while I burst into flames. Uh -huh. You know, like, like this happens to me on the regular. I just get so like, ah, you know, and I just can't, but that's, I, I, I feel like I'm called to do that. And I don't, I don't, and, and you know, I'm okay with living with nothing. So, you know, you're going to fire me. You're not going to take away anything that matters to me. Internally, I want to be the person that I'm proud of. But I think also if, if you're, if you're in a situation where you're supporting a family and you can't do that because you have to have responsibilities, that's okay too. You gotta, it's kind of like you gotta follow your heart in the right situations. So I'm looking for advice for two, two folks. And I'm sure that Kate has a good, healthy heaping of this, of, of this advice. So the person that is coming into, into tech, into, 
uh, dare I say, a toxic environment like that, where it's the political game is very apparent. Just to be fair, like when you're interviewing, that's not easy to tell. Correct. Kate, maybe you know. What is a way that uh, you deal with that? How do you move forward with, a, with an environment like that? So I made a really stupid decision one time to ask a question in an interview. <laughs> My mom had had a not so great experience at the company that I was applying for an internship at. In the end, they ended up telling me that I wasn't technical enough, which was a lie. I knew they were just feeling but hurt by my mom. <laughs> Feel free to speak freely. <laughs> no names, but... Well, I'm, I'm more curious about you, like y- you walking into that situation. What do you do? What's the advice that you found really helpful for, for yourself where you can plainly see that stuff happening? Well, when I'm in an interview now, I'll ask, like, what is the communication like in your organization? Well, I have a mentor I can freely go and ask questions to. And that's why they didn't hire me, because I asked that question, like, what are you looking for in an organization? Well, I want to be able to freely share and freely learn what's going on with the technical stuff. And I said that directly to the guy she had the issue with. And I didn't even realize that I said that. So I hear all these stories from my mom that she has with tech. I know the trade-offs. Like I could go into an organization and just try and work and get experience and not address any of the people issues. But that all has its trade-offs. So I've mentally kind of been preparing for what battles I would be willing to fight and what battles I wouldn't be willing to fight. And she even talked about it in her talk as you're starting out, you can't really address those issues. Go fight some tire fires, I think was what she had said. Yeah, so I don't know how I would address those big issues at first. Great, because so, so you've, you said a couple of things that I can even relate to, and I've been in the industry for 10 years or so now. Anywhere I go, I want to be the learner. I want to be the, the person that can just observe and contribute and communicate freely. You know, anywhere that doesn't seem to support that through indirect communication or actions or so, that's a sign that I'm not going to be a, a fit there. And that's okay. I don't get that job. I, I, I'm probably better off without that. I just won't experience that. <laughs> okay, so that, that's a good one. The other one you, you said was trade-offs. Knowing what phase of life you're in and what trade-offs you're willing to take. Entry-level positions, I feel like the trade-off that a lot of folks have to make, um, maybe unfortunately, is they have to ignore the people problem and let that be a, a later phase that they, they deal with. That's unfortunate. I, I not unfortunate. Well, not as unfortunate for someone that looks like me, generic white guy, you know, but I, I wish I could relate to the, the kind of issues that a lot of other folks have to deal with, you know, but I, I just simply don't. And so that leads me to the second person that Mickey, maybe you have some advice for maybe let's just, let's just say it's me. I'm the person that loves the political game, but doesn't know it. Does anyone love the game? I mean, like the people that love the game generally aren't are the villains in the movie. Just so you know, the sociopaths. Yeah. Um, okay. Well. All right. Well, let's let's be. Let's, <laughs> yeah. Let's let's imagine you're there and you're ready to engage. Yes, I, I am that person that has formed this team of of strongly opinionated people and loves to be the center of attention and communication that flows. You know, that that controls the flow of of info, and somebody is rubbing my shoulders the wrong way. <laughs> so you're the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. Okay, great. Okay, I can give lots of bad guy advice. <laughs> I can play this game. I, can, I would be ruling the world if I was willing to do it. Yeah, okay. Well, then, t- so, t- so tell me, in the, in the most uh, inductive way possible, how would I know that I'm that guy? Okay, they already know. 
I think they already know because basically there's like two spectrums, right? There's two things that people worry about at a company. Some, some people are worried about, I'm on this team and I want this team to be successful. Some people are worried about, I am my own person. I want to rule the world. Now, there's lots of in between there. And to some extent, even when you're your own person, you need to be worried about the company. But the people that are the best place for them to stay is hidden. Sunlight is a really good disinfectant for this type of thing. Because most of the games they play, for example, most incompetent leaders I have found pad themselves with a layer of incompetence underneath them. What this means is they are rewarding people that aren't really great at their job and they're putting them next to them. This serves two purposes. One, it makes their involvement critical still because no one could replace them. That's in direct line. Two, it gives them someone to cut away in case there's pressure. So you, like I'm, let's say I'm a, a senior VP and I have another VP reporting to me or another direct, director of engineering. If I have someone there that's okay, not great, slightly incompetent, definitely can't do my job, I can cut them away when pressure comes in. And also they'll overload vocabulary a lot. And by overloading vocabulary, what you do is, is make it so that nothing can ever be held accountable to you. So words start losing meaning. And, uh, there's just, there are so many effective ways to hold a position. Like, let's say I've got a really good manager coming up and, and they're like spitfire going to be great. Well, I want to make sure they're in a position not to communicate with most people in the organization. Because if I put them in a position to really display that cross-org communication, now I'm threatened. So the best thing for me to do is give them something over here. You would agree that comes from a sense of insecurity, correct? Sure. That's what it sounds like to me. I have a hard time assuming the worst of people in this situation. (laughs) But... There is a reason for the way that people act. And so, like, right, you can't probably fix somebody like that. I think you're correct. Not everyone, I don't think that everyone is evil that does these things that's really unhealthy for and work. I think at some level, I have a hard time imagining, generally speaking, these are smart people. They're not stupid. I have a hard time imagining smart people achieving a certain level and not understanding at some level what they're doing. Because uh, these people, another characteristic about them is they see life as a zero-sum game. If they don't have it, when someone else has it, then they've lost something. And But really, that's not how the world works. You know, a team together, you can build more, which means that everyone gets more. And even that person that's in charge gets more of more, you know, uh, but, but they often see it as a zero-sum game where they need to be in control of all those facets. This is what I think the takeaway is. And I want to check in with you guys and see if, if this makes sense and if I'm on track. But if I, I'm coming new to a team, especially if I'm a junior developer, and I come into a team... And as you get to know the company, you're like, oh, I love this, this is the best, you know, I'm, and it's the honeymoon phase. And then as you learn more, it's like you realize, oh, there's some rotten stuff at the top. And that might create some culture problems. And it's, you realize there's some fiefdom fighting going on. And, and you're, you're really down at the bottom and you don't have any influence in any of those discussions. So the advice that I would give, and I want to check in with you guys, is to say, work on your team getting a good relationship with your team leader and build up your technical skills. Because I think one of the best ways we get jobs in this community is through networking. It's through people who we know. And you tend to run into the same people a lot. So I think there's, it's about human relationships and networking and then skill building at that level. And then I might branch out to a different job. If I was talking to a junior developer, I would say first, get your first job. You can't be picky. Like you have to have a year under your belt minimum, preferably two, in order to really be taken seriously in a lot of interviews. Second, master your tools. You're not always going to be using Ruby or Elixir or Java, but you will likely always be using Git 
and you will likely always be using your text editor. Doing a few fancy text editor tricks in an interview buys you all kinds of credibility that you don't deserve. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So like take the first job you can, put in your time, learn your tools really well, do the things technically that you can do and continue learning because what you want to do is invest in yourself. Because one of the things that I've seen pay off over time is like in a short span of time, you can't necessarily see who someone is. But as you're working next to someone for five, six, seven years, you know who they are, you know what it's like to work with them, or they're around the community. And then it leads to exactly what Mark's talking about with that's where your future opportunities come into. But you can't get those opportunities if you're just nice and everyone likes you. You also have to be competent. So I agree with that. I mean, same way reason that I have another a friend that's likely to come on at, um, at Shift 5 soon, just because we've worked together in the past and we're going to be on the same team again, hopefully. So anyways, I agree. Mark, what you said about having a good relationship with your managers, that in my eyes applies to every area of life. When I was in school, first week, I'd know where my teacher's offices were. If I had questions, I went straight to them and that helped me excel in classes and they gave me a little bit more grace than the other students because I demonstrated that I was working, not because I was a kiss up. Also, <laughs> I played multiple sports and I had good relationships with my coaches. I sat the bench still, but I still had good relationship with my coaches. There was direct communication, so I knew what to expect. And the same thing goes for the experience I've had in retail for the past six years with my managers. If they're scheduling me wrong, if there's issues there, I make sure that I communicate so there's no nothing hits me out of the blue. Like, oh, I didn't know this. I'm overstepping boundaries here. I think that is very important when it comes to management, just knowing your manager, especially starting out. So I think that that actually transitions well, maybe into our next topic is, uh, I think we need to take a better look at entry level and lifting up entry level folks uh, into the community as well. So Kate, focusing you know, on your, your lightning talk, you've experienced that. At the risk of like maybe rehashing a little bit of your lightning talk, what what have you what have you found, you know, really helpful for being somebody that was being you know lifted up or you know yourself? How how are how are other effective ways to lift other folks up? Yeah, every time I'm struggling with programming or when I was struggling with school, mom and dad continued to push me and help me get through that. So having a community that's going to tell you one you can do it that was important. I can say what it was like to support Kate from a parent parental standard. It was relatively easy in community college because the topics she was covering were straightforward, you know, up through calculus. I have no problem helping with any of that. Then she got to NC State and that was a little bit harder to nav- navigate. It felt like sometimes it's hard as an actual engineer to understand why certain things matter to computer science. <laughs> There's a huge disconnect. And I, I don't know if this is helpful for your parent, but she needs to stick with it. But one of the things as a parent that I saw as she navigated those waters was the grind of being in all male or predominantly male classes. And it was starting to affect her. And I don't even know that she put it together at first, what was affecting her, but when she would talk about things to me, like I remember one day she came home and she was frustrated because the guys had been talking about going to some party. And she was like, she had mentioned very clearly, like, I don't go parties that I don't know. You know, I, I, I have to watch my drink and all these other things. And they proceeded to make fun about date rape. Now, this is what your daughters get to go into when they go to college. You know, this is the type of conversations they're going to be inundated with. And which means that when they come home, they have to have someone there to support them. And they have to have someone there to say, like, this is not how it's always going to be. You're not going to always have to be around these jerks. You know, you do get a select at some point in your career that this won't be the case. Also, a lot of guys are really good in whether or not they're actually good at the tech or not. They're good at making you feel like they know things that you don't and you're not a very good person. And she was dealing with that on the regular from them. I think my kids are amazing. I love them to death. 
but sometimes I wonder what it would be like for them without the support structure behind them, because they've heard me talk for years about crap that I have to go through at work. And so they're kind of, they, they t- tend to bristle a little bit better than cave. So like when something happens, they'll tend to like, mm, that's not okay. And mom won't be okay with that. Or dad won't be okay. Like one time when Kate was younger, she called to pick her up from the pool. And my husband was upset. He's like, we, I just dropped her there. Like, why is she calling me? Well, we get there. And the boy had been touching her in the pool. And so my husband, like, she gets in the car and um, my, my husband's like, why did you call me? Like, we said, I wasn't going to come back here for another hour and a half. Why, why are you calling? She goes, well, there's a boy in there and he won't stop touching me. And my husband's like, what did he look like? And so then she, she described him and he slammed that thing in park and in he went. <laughs> and that was telling her, it's not okay for people to treat you like that. And then when we'd have these very, very specific examples of the girls or anyone being mistreated, we would make sure we would repeat that example in front of other people they respect. So then we'd go tell the story. This is what Kate experienced. And people are like, that's ridiculous. No one should have to put up with that. So not only do they see their, their parents' initial reaction, but then you tell these stories so that other people can be like, yeah, that's not okay. You shouldn't do that. And then when they're finally in college and they're, they're seeing this stuff go down, they're like, yeah, that's not okay. I shouldn't have to deal with this. And at least they know to come talk to you about it. You're kind of impressing at a young age that not only do your parents think this is wrong, but other people that you respect think this behavior is wrong. They have to see it as incorrect and that not necessarily that they're a victim, but they don't have to put up with it. Yeah. There's a lot there. Sorry. Sad story to hear. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, yeah. Sad story there about learning experience all around and wonderful advice. I'd like to translate that a little bit into software. What does that example look like in software? So every day, you know, there's, there's stand up, there's on call duties, there's all these other tasks that you need to do. And there's, there's something there that is, uh, uh, made your team's responsibility maybe perhaps unfairly, or there's other managers that are delegating work to your team somehow, but they're not the manager of your, your team. I don't know. Do you have an example there of how, how that applies to software? Yeah. So how, how this works out in software orgs is that we're all so polite. Dang that politeness. <laughs> Dang that politeness. And that politeness means that we wouldn't want to say anything that's not very flattering to someone. And what this means is that when someone's clearly stepping over the line, we don't really want to call it out publicly because we would find that ourselves humiliating to do, right? And so rather than ever talk about these things publicly as being incorrect, we always ever talk about them privately as being incorrect. And that's good. It's good to talk about privately, especially let's say Kate and I work in the same place and, and I'm just really mean to Kate and I disparage her in front of people. Maybe the solution for that is not necessarily to take me on right there. Maybe the solution, because it's the first time through, that you go talk to me like, you know, not cool. And this, I didn't like this. But at some point when someone's a repeat offender, we have to be able to, willing to talk openly. It's not impolite to call a spade to spade. Like when, what happened when, when she experienced this bad behavior, whoever we took it to said it was wrong. If that happened in tech, what you, even if it was cut and dried wrong, people be like, well, what's the context? (laughs) (laughs) They give it too much room. You know, what are the other things happening? How much responsibility? Yeah, they're, they're giving to, and sometimes when you see things clearly are wrong, you need to isolate that topic. And be willing to say it's wrong. You don't necessarily have to, per- it's like, let's say if I mess up, it doesn't have to be, we're making this rule because Mickey's a jerk and Mickey did this. And so now we have this rule. You can be like, you can at least say there's been a problem lately. This has been the problem. This is the new rule to address it. People that know who it is, know who it is. People, But like, we have to be able to willing, like if we're willing to say some behavior is good, I'm not saying not be kind and gentle, but you're going to have to be able to say some behavior is bad. And we're just really bad at that because we're all so polite and that's not what professional people do. 
So earlier we talked about this idea of, you know, the Peter Principle, people having a level of incompetence, but it all really comes down to insecurity. And I think in the workplace, we see that a lot, you know, especially in the, probably in the college environment as well, where a lot of the students, the guys, I was one of these guys where I was wanting to feel like I belonged, wanting to prove that I was worthy of being here, that I was good, right? So like there's some measure of geek flex of, yeah, I've been programming since I was 12, right? And that's not the case for most people. So where I'm going with this is, I think there's a level of insecurity that happens in the workplace where people are wanting to, you know, they feel better about themselves that they can push someone else down. Hopefully that's not us as the listener or the speakers, right? Hopefully that's not us and we can be conscious of our own ourselves enough to know that we're not doing that. But if we see this in a workplace environment and we're observers to this and we think this is going on, what can we do to be supportive to kind of put an end to that? Or I don't know, what do you think? Honestly, I don't think that's just a guy thing. I think everybody does that. They know something, they kind of want to flex. And sometimes that goes too far. I am pretty blunt. I'm not as blunt as most people. And I have a way of saying things that doesn't quite offend people. So I will just straight up tell them, I didn't ask you about that. Can you answer my question directly? (laughs) Kindly. You know, if I'm in an interview with somebody and they keep talking, I just know that about them before I even work with the people. I applied with this manager at um, the last last place that I worked and he talked a lot. When you were at NC State, I remember specifically there was a, a guy that you were working with or there were there were maybe a couple guys that you were working with that were helpful and that actually provided that team feel to you. And so maybe if you um, you can think of the, the specific things they did that made you feel comfortable with them. Yeah. So, uh, Thomas and AJ were, um, I'd have a problem. I couldn't solve my project. And Thomas would literally hop on a Zoom call late at night and help me figure out what I did wrong and tell me what I did wrong. He was so far above my skill level. He was like you. He's always been tinkering with uh, mechanical things and coding from a very, very young age. So, he helped me get through projects and he's probably the main reason I made it through my classes because I hadn't done as much programming as him. And a lot of the people going into that program had, I just knew how to get good grades, but that wasn't enough. I needed prior experience coding. So that is a way, instead of shoving it in my face, he really helped me. And I've had some people shove it in my face before. So I honestly didn't register that. Mom maybe remembers that. I don't remember it like that, probably because I moved on and forgot about it and didn't even let it bother me. I would say also like to endorse what she's saying is oftentimes when I'm working with young developers, the best thing I can do to help them is one, say I'm available to jump on a Zoom and two, jump on the Zoom with them when they need help. Because especially in a remote culture, it's not, you can spend hours, but sometimes they don't need hours. Sometimes they need seven minutes. That's what they need in order to get unblocked and for you to explain some key concept that they're missing. So what Thomas was doing for her when, when people are helping each other out that way, because honestly, sometimes like I know the thing, I'm just for blanking for whatever reason. Sometimes I need someone to help me. So just having that camaraderie is super helpful for making people feel included. I currently tutor and all of my students have some learning. um, They're they're either catching up in school or they actually have a learning disability. And 
So they've been told they have this learning disability and that they can't master this. They can't master math. But what I do is I say, okay, you're weak in this area, but you're really strong in this area. So you're balanced out, and I, um, that gives them a level of confidence. That's what my mom did for me. So when I'm working with somebody, I tell them where they're strong and maybe where they need to focus a little bit more on. That's cool. That's having that balanced approach. But one of the things I got from both of you there was some of the things that we can do as a peer in that situation, like a, a coworker at the same level, you know, just being able to be supportive. And I think, you know, we've, we've all met that person who like, oh, I can't believe you didn't know that kind of a jerk, right? And obviously that's just not good emotional intelligence. Like they're just being a jerk at that moment. So Mickey, I appreciate what you've been kind of sharing also as a parent, as someone who's outside the workplace environment, you know, the person we're talking about and they're coming back to us, you know, this is our children and they're dealing with some of these things and how we can be supportive at the home. I think that's good and that's important. You know, I'm not necessarily saying you guys have to have the answer for this, but I'm just kind of thinking we're in the workplace and, you know, if you, especially I think when you're in a physical workplace, it, it's more obvious than, uh, you know, if it's all virtual. But when there is some bad action happening or just like, you know, that, that doesn't seem quite right. I just think I want to be a supportive person. I want to be, you know, maybe take the person I, I think is the offender, take them aside and say, hey, you know, the way you're acting there, it came across poorly. Maybe you shouldn't be doing it this way. I don't know. Do you guys have any other thoughts on what we can do as someone who's witnessing we want to step in. We want to help. What I've noticed with my friends and coworkers is you need to have, you can't always just be critical towards them. You have to have a level of positivity and acceptance from that other person before you go around correcting them. Because no one's going to listen to somebody that goes around and is always critiquing you. That's why it's important to invest to, uh, into your relationships around the workplace is because eventually either they're going to come to you or you're going to go to them like, hey, I don't think it's right that you said this to them. And this is why. Don't just tell them they did something wrong. Tell them the why. And you do have to have a relationship there, some level of credibility with them before going up to them and saying something. So sometimes I think when you see something in the workplace... Sometimes you, you feel compelled to engage with it. And I think you have to be careful about how easy it is to trigger you to be compelled to engage with it. Because I do think there's a problem if everyone's ready to engage with every problem all the time. Like that, there can be over-engagement in a way that's just not helpful. So I think it takes a lot of wisdom to work with people and to build the relationships necessary to influence them and to wield your in- influence respectively and to know what to do when you're not sure what to do. Right. So like you need to have like your base case, your base case when you're not sure what to do. Do you have a standard? Do justice. Walk humbly. Love mercy. Like these type of things. Do you have these kind of foundations in your mind of, of who you are, even if you don't know what you're doing? And then do you have the thresholds of when like you kind of have to prepare for these situations ahead of time? What are you willing to risk to address something? Because if you're really not willing to risk anything, it's going to make you look worse to half engage and then slink away. You know, so kind of know who you are and how you are all the time. Know your threshold for when you want to engage with something and then think about the different ways to engage with it. It could be talking with the person. It could be talking with their manager. It could be supporting the person that experienced the behavior. It could be filing a complaint with HR. There are different ways to engage with it. And I think it takes a lot of wisdom to sort through those and figure out which one is the tool to use at the time. Yeah. And I think coming back to something you're talking about earlier, you know, it's the idea of emotional intelligence. EQ is what we call it. And it's kind of becoming the new need to have skill in the workplace, I think, beyond technical skills. So just knowing how to deal with people, deal with situations. But we're about out of time. But before we go, 
Kate, at the conference, you mentioned, hey, I'm looking for jobs. Are you open to opportunities at this time? So that if someone's listening to this, they're like, yeah, Kate sounds like an awesome person we'd love to have on our team. We want to reach out to her. Are you open to that? Yes, I am open to work right now. I'm still looking for a job. I'm in the process of multiple places, but yes, I am still looking. Awesome. And Mickey, how about you? Uh, what's next for you? So currently, uh, two months ago, I started as a principal at Shift 5. And so what I've done is uh, work through the adoption process where we've chosen Elixir as the stack. So that was a that was a whole journey in itself, taking people from not no Elixir to having a problem to solve and selling that Elixir is the best fit because I believe it's the best fit, not because I'm just trying to sell Elixir. You know, so that's that's a difficult thing. So we're kind of on the other side of that now, where I've started coding the MVP and I'm writing it all on LiveView. I love uh, LiveView seven or you know zero seventeen because now we get click. JS in our op with LiveView. It's amazing. And so for me, I'm not looking right now because I am quite happy where I am. I feel like the world is in front of me as, in, in regards to this because like we do amazing things like cybersecurity for F-35s. And, you know, uh, that's, that's an amazing thing to try and keep, keep your people in the military safe, you know. But I am going to be hiring. I'm going to be, I'm going to have to build a team that can work in Elixir on the back end piece. And then also I really, really, really want to find someone who loves Live View and Alpine. No, not Alpine. What is it? Tailwinds. We're using Tailwind CSS. And, and if you, if you love that stuff, you need to find me. We can work together. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk with us because these are opportunities that we have as like, I'm, you know, a, a white male, a father of daughters. You know, I have the opportunity to be supportive when my daughters are coming home from the workplace and they're engaging with challenges that we have currently in our culture. And I want to be supportive. I want to be, you know, letting them know that this is acceptable. This is not acceptable. We support you. But also, I I love the idea of trying to be more encouraging and inviting to youth and the people around us to come into tech because there are a lot of benefits. Like you were just talking about like, Hey, I get to work with Phoenix and live view and tailwind CSS. It's like, it's cool stuff. It's like, we want to be able to share that with other people. We want them to have some of the economic safeties that we've talked about. Uh, but yeah, so I, I love it all. Um, I want to point people to your ElixirConf talks. They're online now, so we'll include links to those in the show notes so people can check that out because those are awesome. Can I tell you one more thing, Mark? Because you mentioned it and it triggered my memory. My youngest daughter, when she was 12, I had her do that Piper, build the Piper computer. There's a kit where you get a Raspberry Pi and you have a little screen, you hook it all up and you follow all the instructions. And you have this homemade computer. Highly recommend for anyone with young daughters. It has Minecraft on it. It's a lot of fun. And it was probably the one thing I did with my youngest that was the most interesting to her. When I come home from school and I have issues with work, my dad and my mom have always been very encouraging and pushed me towards that. I've seen other fathers and mothers not encourage, especially the daughters, to be ambitious in that area. And I think that makes a huge difference, you know, telling your daughter she can't do something or she's not capable or she wasn't designed for this. That's, I think, what makes the big difference in the culture. So being encouraging and just telling them they can is the biggest thing that I think you can do. Uh, Before we let you go, is there anything else you want to touch on or closing remarks? Yes. Coming out of college, I thought I was going to get a job right away, but that was silly of me. (laughs) There's a lot of work that goes into getting a job. So after the end of the four years, it's not the end. Working to get a job is a grind and having projects and experience to show, very important. I feel silly for not seeing that beforehand, but I guess, you know, it is what it is. But yeah, have experience. 
I'm going to suggest, Mark, that you do something uh, with your daughters. I don't know. Are they still young enough where you tuck them in? Mm-hmm. I taught uh, Kate how to count in binary at bedtime. I lay down in bed next to her and we started counting in binary. And this was when she was a young teenager. And when she got to college, uh, they introduced in class and she didn't know what it was, but then she knew what it was. Like she already knew it. She didn't know what they were talking about. So <laughs> teaching your kids stuff like counting and binary, binary, great things to do and ways to encourage them so that the stuff is not so unapproachable later on. Oh, that's fun. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. It was a wonderful time talking. If people want to follow you online or maybe engage with you, maybe Kate, they want to hire you, where should they go to do that? You can find me on LinkedIn at Kate Rizenis. That's where I connect with most of my people. All right. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And Mickey? So I... uh post a lot on Twitter, especially when I've, I'd like to broadcast when I don't know something, apparently. So I, I do a lot of Elixir type questions out there. Also, I'm on LinkedIn. So I would say between Twitter and LinkedIn is likely the best way to contact me. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for your time. Appreciate it. But that's all the time we have for today. So thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.